and Jeff Lemon and we're on the way to Pakistan literally in the case of Jeff who's cleared customs and passports and immigration and all the rest of it he's waiting at the gate next stop Islamabad hello Jeff uh, hello yes sweaty um, a little overwrought I, I hope you've um, heard about the the past track website that you need to go and fill in a, a profile at to enter Pakistan because um, you need to do that before you reach the um, the bit where you're trying to get your boarding pass and they say you haven't filled out this thing yet and you have to do it with like seven minutes until the flight closes it's not a pleasant <laughs> experience what, why does it not surprise me at all that you didn't read any of the messages in the group chat that spelled all this out a week ago I've already done it of course but you'll get on the plane and that's the most important thing today on the show we have a long form interview with the great Paul Kelly we recorded it a few weeks ago there's a lot there from his long history uh, in the game not necessarily as a player although he has played a lot but his writing and his music and his poetry, really, uh, that's contributed to the culture of the game and just his life more broadly, Jeff. It was a, a, a real privilege to sit down, albeit virtually, via Zoom, with a true great of, of Australian music and an icon. Well, I think what we most enjoy doing on this show is having conversations with people and seeing where they go. And that's exactly what we got to do with Paul, uh, to go through his life in music, his, his love of cricket as well. And so I, I think that's going to be a real treat for Final Word interview fans, um, which will be coming up pretty shortly. Uh, it's been a, a horrible and eventful week in the world more generally. I, I don't want to skip over that. I suppose, the Jeff, the majority of correspondence we received about it was in relation to the European Cricket League because we were interviewing uh, Dan Weston last week around that and the Russian team was scheduled to play in Spain this week. I thought it was only right to provide an update from Dan on that. So Russia's team, the Petersburg Sporting, pulled out of the competition on Friday. The ECL were keen to kind of keep the two things separate but uh, their, their hand was forced uh, on the basis that they weren't going to be able to get the necessary visas and, and ultimately they, the European airspace being such a challenge, not only for the, the Russian team but for a number of the teams uh, based in Eastern Europe trying to get back. So they've got a number of challenges to sort out there at the moment. Uh, Petersburg have been replaced by the, the champions of Gibraltar uh, in the comp uh, this week. So... I mean, obviously, a situation that I don't want to gloss over, but just to answer the questions that did come in around would the, the Russian team be kicked out of the ECL in the short term? The answer is no, they weren't, but um, it became impossible for them to participate. So there'll be further questions, I suppose, for the ICC to answer around Russia's status uh, as a, an associate member of the ICC. But um, at this stage, watch this space. Well, there are sporting federations where Russia's a much bigger influence, uh, as in the IOC, you know, the Olympic. Federation and the uh, and, and FIFA particularly, where they're they're sort of trying to soft pedal and take some fairly half-hearted measures at this point. So you know, cricket doesn't have that major influence as far as you know Russia's concerned, but it's still something that they need to deal with. Mind you, the ICC still haven't actually dealt with the Afghanistan question with um, a, mm. a country that's been taken over by the Taliban who's banning women from playing sports. So I wouldn't expect particularly fast action on, on Russia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, there are there are examples of where countries have been exiled effectively. South Africa, the most prominent. But even the fact that we're going to Pakistan where there was no international cricket for over a decade. So it's not without precedent for, for big decisions to be made. But um, but yes, uh, that, that hasn't been the case so far. Jeff, other dreadful news this week is that Rod Marsh is clearly in a fight 
uh, for his life, according to his son Paul Marsh. The statement they put out the family a couple of days ago. His heart stopped in Bundaberg uh, on Thursday at a charity event for the the Queensland Bulls Masters, who saved his life there and then. Really, according to reports, he's been in an induced coma since. Uh, 74 years of age, uh, one of the greats of Australian cricket, 96 test matches between uh, 1970 and 1984, that remarkable relationship with Dennis Lilly growing up so close to one another. They nearly combined for 100 test wickets. Their careers started together, ended together, uh, and then he's had such a big presence post-playing career as well, leading the Cricket Academy in Adelaide, then setting up a version of it in England, and and he was national selector until five years ago, six years ago. Uh, so he's had a, an influence on this generation as well. And look, Jeff, we've taken the piss at times out of uh, Rob Marsh in recent years, all in good fun, but the, the very serious matter of his health, uh, uh, we wish him well, and, and hopefully he's back on his feet soon. Yeah, it's one of these stories that's it's like when you hear about Chris Cairns, you hope that there'll be some sort of uptick um, at the end of this story but we don't know whether that's going to be the case we don't know which way it's going to tilt at this point so um, all of our best wishes with Uncle Rod As we say Pakistan right in the forefront right now I mean the very fact that your your flight's boarding as we have this brief conversation uh, Pat Cummins spoke to us on Zoom uh, yesterday he's arrived the team got there on Saturday night I think it was Pakistan time they're feeling very safe Tom Decent wrote a great piece around the security uh, situation in the hotel so uh, that side of things has been accounted for. Of course, from the cricket perspective, it's Pat Cummins' first tour as captain away from home and the first time Australia have played Test cricket away uh, since September 2019, which just seems remarkable. Um, they've got Farwad Ahmed on board as the spin consultant because Shri Shriam, uh, who normally would be with them on a tour like this, uh, can't get a visa because of his Indian passport, which is um, disappointing, but uh, that's the way these things go, regrettably. And yeah, Jeff, I think this was summed up pretty well by Lee Couchman, one of our patrons in the DMs the other day saying that Cummins referred to a lost generation of players who haven't been there since 1998 and really that's a hell of a team if you think about all the players who weren't able to go to Pakistan, so those who uh, made their test debut between uh, 1998 until now and those who aren't on this trip, uh, there are some brilliant names who, who who missed the chance to have the privilege of being in Pakistan I mean absolutely when you run through it I mean even players who were around in that era but weren't on that particular tour in 98, sort of Jason Gillespie, Damien Martin, Matthew Hayden and then yeah all the, all the players who debuted in the test team after that, Gilchrist Michael Clark, Shane Watson, Mike Hussey, Chris Rogers, Simon Cadditch, Brett Lee, Mitch Johnson, Ryan Harris James Pattinson, like you know a, a hell of a lot of excellent Australian test cricketers who didn't get the, the opportunity to go over there and try things out and I, I think we're all fascinated to see how that will go in terms of what, what the pitches will offer Australia's quicks this time around and you know what sort of style of test match we're going to see play out yeah, hopefully it's a quick wicket in Rawpindi. That, that's the reputation historically. Uh, this is the part of the world, of course, that Usman Khawaja spent the first four years of his life born in Islamabad. Uh, he did a lovely interview with the Sydney Morning Herald uh, over the weekend talking about how it wasn't those early years, of course, he was only a very little boy when they moved over, but in 1992 when they came back for a holiday, he went to Pakistan for a few weeks and came back at absolute garners, like a seven-year-old boy or something like that. So that was really nice. He answered a few questions in the press conference today, Jeff, in Urdu. So uh, he'll be a popular tourist over there 
Uh, and thinking about the Pakistan team, and we'll do far more of this on, on the Daily Show when we preview the test when I join you in a couple of days. I mean, Australia have only beaten Pakistan three times in any test match in Pakistan between 1958 and 1998. So, of course, the series win in 98 was 1-0 with two draws, and the series win, I think it was in 59, was 2-0. Uh, but other than that... It's been Pakistan all the way. So I think we need to keep that in perspective, that it's been a very, very tough place for Australia to tour. And Pakistan have got a number of players who've thrived since they've returned home. Uh, no more than Barbara Azam, who averages 87 there, and Farwad Alam, who's in remarkable nick, made the ICC Team of the Year. Rizwan was player of the PSL, and he's been class in all three formats. And Shaheen Sharafridi, Jeff, he's not the number one ranked bowler in the world at the moment, but th- there's an argument that on his day, he's the most dangerous bowler uh, in global cricket across formats with the angle he gets being a left armer and the prodigious swing as well and he's still only 21 years of age. Well certainly with the new ball and he's got a, a touch of the, the Mitchell Starks from that 2015-ish sort of period where Stark was unplayable mm. with a new white ball so the, the only question is going to be whether he can transfer that across and have that sort of impact um, early up with a red ball or, or whether players will be able to treat him more defensively but when you're swinging it say into a, or well he'd be swinging it away from a left hander like David Warner but doing it at, at 150 David Warner hasn't looked completely delighted facing express pace uh, certainly when he was facing Mark Wood over the, the recent ashes so it'll be interesting to see how he shapes up against uh, Shaheen Shafridi. And Hassan Ali as well who took 41 wickets 16 in, in 2021 in career best form and all the quirks we love Jeff a 35 year old tweaker as it was uh, when Australia were there uh, four years ago with Bilal Asif and the tour before all that was Ulfika Barber in the UAE. Uh, so, yeah, an old spinner. Still no room for Nassim Shah, by the way, who, you know, took a test hat-trick at 16 just before the pandemic, or Mohamed Abbas, who picked up 17 wickets at 10.5 uh, the last time that Australia played Pakistan away from home in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So it gives a sense of that real depth they've got. And, uh, yeah, hopefully it translates into a very exciting first test match at Royal Pindi this week. Next week, Jeff, or later this week, I should say, the Women's World Cup begins in New Zealand. We've had the warm-up games over the weekend, but barely any coverage of them because they weren't televised. I mean, contrast that to the, the, the Men's T20 World Cup last year where they were all on television and we had a real sense of the competition ahead of us but I mean I could barely find a scorecard the other night so that's not great form but you know when we actually hit go on the tournament proper we'll devote big slabs of the weekly show to that while we're in Pakistan to keep tabs on the tournament Uh, it's a shame that they clash devastated not to be there really Jeff but you know the very fact that it's hotel quarantine and the Pakistan trip and it all combines to make it impossible for us Uh, the competition begins on the 4th of March between uh, New Zealand and the West Indies at Mount Monganui's Bay Oval Australia and England, a blockbuster on the 5th at the Tron, Seddon Park, Hamilton. India play Pakistan, another blockbuster, of course, it always is, uh, on the 6th again at Bay Oval. And the fourth game of the first round, if you like, is South Africa, who will be following closely against Bangladesh at Dunedin. So, uh, yes, it'll it'll be more the weekly show for us on that rather than making a daily show. But uh, it's been a long time. We've been waiting for this tournament for for five years, over five years, Jeff, and can't wait to get into it. Well, it's pretty frustrating, the timing. I, I think that if this were any other test tour we would be in New Zealand it's just, it's this one it's the one, it's the return to Pakistan Mm. it's 
it's it's the one that we've been waiting for and that we felt like we just couldn't miss given the historical nature of it but it'll be fairly frustrating over the next few weeks to be you know frustrating to have had to choose between one or the other um, but even more so as we watch things pan out that you know we where we can't be there we can't be at the ground and, and be part of it which we would have liked to do for England's part they had a big win overnight over Bangladesh with Nat Shiver making a hundred uh, over to men's domestic cricket in Australia really quickly uh, only one of the three games scheduled in the mercantile mutual got up over the weekend that was Queensland pumping Victoria by 92 runs at Junction Oval the Bulls uh, made 286 uh, they were led by uh, Sam Truloff making 80 and then Victoria never got close. Even with Maxwell in the team, he made a, a 10 ball, two bowled by Gurinder Sandhu. Maddinson in the runs, but all out 193. Both of the New South Wales-Tasmania games at North Sydney Oval were washed out which I suppose reflects the fact, Jeff, that uh, in the, uh, well, in the mid to uh, northeast of Australia, if you can call it that, there's been torrential rain, especially in Queensland. Um, if you've uh, been caught up in that, uh, our best wishes to you in Brisbane. But yeah, three games to go next week and then the final at the Junction Oval again on the 11th of March in New South Wales. So uh, a top of the table on 15 points, then WA on 13, Queensland also on 13 and Tasmania 12 before it falls away to Victoria and South Australia. So more white ball cricket, domestic white ball cricket and, and the Sheffield Shield continues after that. Jeff, I can hear the boarding call in the background, so we probably should sneak in just a tiny bit of... Uh, I'm not going to yell Nerd Pledge because I don't want to get arrested at the airport, um, but it is Nerd <laughs> Pledge, uh, which is a game that we play with all the lovely people on the Patreon page. Uh, they try to stump us. They send us a contribution to help us keep the show going, but it's a number that relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what it is. For instance, Ian Colvin is our nerd pledger today. $2.02 pence in the great British currency. 202. So the decimal point could be anywhere, but what does 202 mean when it comes to cricket? Adam. Yeah, and we are absolutely sport for choice on this number as well. So thank you very much to Ian for giving us plenty of room to operate in. So I, I first went to test wickets, 202 test wickets for John Snow and Andy Roberts, two greats. 202 has been made nine times in test cricket, including a few beauties. Jason Holder's unbeaten 202 against England the last time uh, they were there. Of course, England returned to the West Indies this week. Uh, Brenda McCullum's 202 against Pakistan in Sharjah the day after Philip Hughes passed away, a most emotional innings, well, for everybody who watched it, but not least for Brendan McCullum. Uh, Chiteshwa Pajara, his 202, which I remember very fondly at the Rancho Relaxo uh, in 2017, batting with Ritterman Saha. That was a, a series-defining innings. They didn't win the Test match, but at that particular juncture when Ritterman Saha and Pajara came together, it looked as though Australia were right, were right on top and had a chance to win there, but in the end, the best they could take from that was a draw. But given it's in GBP here from Ian, I'm tipping it's either going to be Jon Snow or maybe, just maybe, uh, Sir Leonard Hutton's unbeaten 202 against the West Indies at the Oval in 1950. And I thought all the more appropriate talk about that innings and that series because uh, Sonny Ramadan has passed away overnight at age 92. Um, the great off-spinner who exploded onto the scene in England in that series in, in 1950 from Trinidad-Tobago originally and he and Al Valentine took 59 wickets between them in just four test matches uh, as uh, as they went to defeat England in England for the first time comprehensively 3-1 for Sonny Ramadan's part. He, he also dominated the start of the series in, in 1954 taking uh, 13 wickets in, in two test matches when England came back for the return series and he was on track to do so again in 1957 when the Windies returned 
to England where he took seven for uh, in the first innings at Edgbaston but per our, our long conversation about him on story time a couple of months ago, uh, that's when England finally cracked the code with uh, with Peter May and Colin Cowdery. Uh, but all told, Sonny Ramadan, uh, 43 test matches through that decade between 1950 and 1960, and the raw numbers are 158 wickets at 28. But returning to, to the Hutton 202, you might think that was the one test match that England did win in that series, losing as they did 3-1. But on the contrary, this was a this was a, a real celebration uh, in the final test match at the Oval for the West Indies. So uh, they batted first and made 503. Frank Worrell uh, leading the way with another century. I think he made three in the series. Uh, but then England were all out for 344, with Hutton getting 202 of them and carrying his bat as well. Uh, unbeaten at the end, faced the first ball and, and, and batted the whole way through as the rest of the fell around him. Uh, if you're wondering, that's 58.2% of the run, so getting up towards Bannerman areas there. Across Hutton's career, uh, he played 513 matches and made 40,000. 140 runs at 55. He reached 100 centuries. This was in his Wisdom Almanac uh, obituary, I should say. Just 619 first-class innings, which is the quickest for any Englishman. He ended up with three figures on 129 occasions, uh, and 11 of those were, were double hundreds, including uh, the innings I'm referring to at the Oval. And in 79 test matches, he made 6,971 runs at an average of 57 with 19 centuries, twice uh, carrying his bat, and eight times in a series uh, he made in excess of 400 runs giving a sense of his consistency over, over such a long stretch of time of course he was the world record holder for his 364 at the Oval as a young man uh, in 1938 and if not for World War II he, he almost certainly would have been the first man to play 100 test matches but that wasn't to be and the fact that he came back after the war as well not because of um, his service in combat but when he was training to become a commando, he, he broke his arm in three places and uh, the expectation was that he wouldn't be able to play again. But, but he did, uh, and he did lead that English team towards the end of his career as well, uh, including uh, in 1954-55 in Australia, uh, where uh, they famously lost the first test match after Hutton popped Australia into bat and they made 600, but they fought back to win uh, that brilliant England team that he led through the mid-50s. And, and he's often considered uh, England's finest opener alongside Jack Hobson. That 202 not out... Despite the circumstances in a series loss was one of his very finest innings as well. On a day when we spoke to Paul Kelly about the song starring Sonny Ramadan and uh, Alf Valentine, it's only fitting that he should come up in the Nerd Pledge numbers today. Uh, and also, Ian, congratulations, because you have won the Brick Lane giveaway. You get to give away a slab of Brick Lane's finest. I'm guessing by your currency you're not in Australia, uh, so it can only be picked up in Australia. So either you travel to Australia to get it, or you send it to someone who is in Australia. But that decision will rest with you. Uh, but you have got the, the, the can, the 24 cans of cold goodness uh, in your control to be able to send, where, be sent wherever you like. And, uh, and crucially, you don't need to do anything. We've had a number of emails saying, what do we do to get the beer? Nothing. Just wait for the email to arrive in your inbox with the voucher. We're on that at the moment. Okay, Jeff, uh, we'll let you go. I'll see you uh, in Islamabad in a couple of days uh, and we'll take a breather here and after that, it'll be our conversation with Paul Kelly. Deal, deal, Pakistan. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lim.
All right, well, I've lost Jeff. Uh, Jeff has uh, literally put down the microphone and jumped on the plane. I'll just take this opportunity uh, to remind you uh, that Woodstock Cricket make the best bats in the world, and we have a 20% discount with the final word. TFW20 is the code at woodstockcricket.co.uk. We crunched the numbers on Storytime last week. We had a look at a few cricket bats uh, in Australia and what they're retailing for at the moment, up towards 12, 13, 1400 bucks. Remarkable uh, when you think what they used to cost compared to what they cost now. Well, if you pick up a Woodstock, which is you know, comparatively quite affordable at 375 quid for the two bats that, that came first and second in the Goodyear Guide uh, last year, this time last year, well, e- even when you add on the costs that would come from, from uh, shipping and flying them over uh, to Australia, when you add on the 20% discount, they're still roughly half price. So to get yourself the best cricket bat in the world at an affordable price, woodstockcricket.co.uk. Okay, the offer code is TFW20. Treat yourself. Get yourself a new stick. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, and we are absolutely delighted to welcome to the show singer, musician, actor, composer, uh, jack of all trades, Mr Paul Kelly. Welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Like your writing, so um, I'm very happy to be here with you. Uh, Adam and I have been talking about trying to get you on the show for some years now, uh, and and it, it largely dates back to this this meeting. I actually I met you at a writers' festival in Bali about ten years ago. I would have been in my mid twenties. I don't know how why I was there. I was doing some sort of spoken word performance stuff, and the the bill was full of all these really famous writers. And I went to the you know, the, the sort of meet and greet thing, didn't know anybody. And one of the festival organisers said, oh, you should talk to someone. Uh, this is Paul, and then disappeared. And I was like, fuck, what do I talk to Paul Kelly about? I, I, don't, I don't know what to do in this situation. But you being very expert at these things, you just started asking me questions and you found out that I did sports writing and immediately wanted to talk about the cricket because it was, I think, 2011. Australia was not going too well at the time. And then we got onto uh-huh. the footy and then... Uh, the only thing I remember clearly is that we, we furiously agreed that Jimmy Bartell was the best overhead mark for a midfielder in the comp at that point. We were very firm on that. But yes. it's, it stayed with me that you were a massive sports nut and that if there was a chance to have a chat to you about cricket and so on on the show, we should do it. So here we are. Oh, that's, that's yeah. I remember, I remember some of that conversation. I know there were, there were lychee martinis involved at some stage and various other drinks. But Jimmy Bartell... Uh, what an amazing player. Did we talk about his um, great wet weather abilities? I think we must have Probably, done. I don't know if we – yeah. I remember it was, it was after that that I remember hearing him being interviewed and uh, they were asking me about what, how he – you know, why was he such a good wet weather footballer? And he said oh, – I've always found this really interesting, so I remember it. He said, I play for the other players' mistakes. So he plays presuming that that – you know what normally happens in a normal day, dry weather. Players will they'll they'll take the mark, but he's going to play the odds that they're going to drop that mark. So he's going to be there. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was a pretty smart, pretty smart uh, strategy from old Jimmy. Also a very good-looking guy too, wasn't he? he? He was a very beautiful man. The sea green eyes. You know, it's hard to resist that sort of thing. Right. You're not a cat supporter. Right? 
Are you a cat supporter? I am, yeah. And, and, I'm, a Haw- and I'm, a Hawthorne, I'm a Hawthorne supporter on the other side of it. And he managed that transition, Bartel, I reckon, from being early in his career, he was seen as a like a very aesthetically pleasing, pretty-looking fella. Uh, and then by the end of his career, he had that rugged thing going on. He sort of managed to go from, I guess, one group of people that would have enjoyed his look to another through the course of yeah. 12 or 13 years dominating for Geelong. I mean, what did he won? Yeah. Won the Brandlow, won the Norm Smith, won three flags, all-time great. Yeah. And long, long sleeved, long, long sleeve. There you go as well. Yeah. Love it. yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. We started off with Jimmy. That's good. Yes, <laughs> we, we we had to get him in at some point. But we're we're here. We're at the end of the Ashes. I, I presume you've been watching it, given that you were writing songs about Usman Khawaja. You couldn't resist the song of praise after the Twin Tons in Sydney. How was your cricketing summer? It was really good. I actually got to watch you know a lot more than I mean. I just try to watch as much as possible. I pretty much watched. Well, I watched one day. I watched one day live, which was the short day. It's a Scotty Boland day, so no regrets there. It was an hour and a half. Third day of the MCG test, I was there. And I watched the rest on TV and pretty much, you know, every every ball on TV, which I don't always get to do that, but that's the Melbourne test and the Sydney test. I watched lots and lots of that. We were sort of busy in the December, so I sort of saw it in snatches and uh, watched Watched a fair bit of that. You're sort of steeped in MCG history yourself, I suppose, based on uh, one of your anthems being played there so often. Uh, having been there for that Scott Boland morning, where does that sit for you in terms of moments you've you've seen and experienced at the MCG over the decades? Uh, right up there, I saw Shane Warne's 700th wicket. I saw Mularatha, oh, I'm not saying it right, getting called Sri Lankan spinner. Murali. Daryl Hare. The umpire. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so that was a low point, I guess. But it's funny when you watch it when you're there. I mean, it's, you probably get more information when you watch, listen to it on the radio or watching it on, on telly. But being there, it's a little bit puzzling at first thing. What's going on? And then you just realise what's going on. That, was, that wasn't that was great. Seeing, I remember seeing, I remember a very, very slow century from David Byrne, you know, late, maybe one of his final matches. You know, there's Brett Lee, Brett Lee's first test. He got Five for his first outing, didn't he? Yep. Yeah, so lot, yeah, lots and lots. I used to go regularly with my friend Demos. We still do go. We used to always go on Boxing Day, and then it sort of shifted that shifted to the second or third day because I started. I started to get sick of the crowds, the Boxing Day crowds. That's uh, sort of getting a bit to the old man, curmudgeonly, I guess. But I just actually found it a bit more fun second or third day without a whole lot of uh, distractions going on. So, yeah, so, yeah, been been going to the Boxing Day Test for years, usually usually just a one one day, maybe two, and watch the rest on TV. So where, did, where does cricket start for you? Because you are you're born in Adelaide, 1955, big family, Roman Catholic family, and growing up there, how much of life was footy and cricket when you were growing up? Uh, it, was, it was footy and cricket. I was very sporty and... My, my brothers were, and uh, I went to a pretty, you know, I went to Christian Brothers School, Ross River College, which is, a very, you know, has sort of three-pronged sort of, you know, the three main things in life are sport, religion, and academic studies. And sport was, came down from, you know, the older generations. Yeah, mum liked listen to the footy. Dad, dad liked the footy and the cricket. Uncles, uh, had cousin, Kieran Kelly, played for Norwood. Norwood was a family team, so Used to go and watch Norwood play all through the sixties when they didn't didn't win very much at all. 
They're very, I mean, they're like a sister club to Melbourne, the Red and Blue. They were the Demons in the 50s and they had a strong tradition and that their arch rivals were Port Adelaide, just like Melbourne and the, and the Magpies. A similar thing going on um, Melbourne's and Norwood's heyday was in the 50s too as, as well, a bit like Melbourne. And then we had this land, long lean patch in the 60s, you know, just when I was a kid going to watch them. So um, I think part of my character was being formed through watching Melbourne all through the 60s. They were one of those teams that would uh, beat, you know, beat teams they weren't expected to beat then lose to the teams below them. So very frustrating. And they finally started winning premierships after, after I left, you know, premierships again, you know, became a, you know, a powerhouse team again from 75 onwards. So, yeah, lots of memories going to, to watch Norwood play at the Parade Oval. And if I go to Adelaide um, in footy season, I like to go down and watch them play. Just the yeah, oval's just pretty much the same as it was when I was a kid. That was great. Uh, lots of lot of cricket. Shield cricket was big then, so I used to go and watch the Shield cricket. Les Favell, captain of South Australia and a very entertaining player. Finch was captain. I think he made him play one or two tests. I saw Ian Chappell's first test at the Adelaide Oval when he was an all-rounder, the old leg spin. Ian Redpath saw his first test. He made 97. It might have been the same test. Or I remember Bill Laurie and uh, Ian Redpath making none for 244 one day uh, on an opening day. That was classic. <laughs> one of my favourite uh, photographs of all time is one of Bill Laurie playing district cricket. Have you seen that one where he's leaning right over a blocking a ball and his nose is almost touching the ground and the score next to his name is like 220, not out. He explained this perfectly, massively focused forward defensive shot. I think that's from the innings that took him five days to play. Over five weekends, sorry, in a district final, something like that. When he no, um, that Northcote playing for Northcote. It's interesting you yeah. raised that though because, I mean, the 60s is seen as like a – a relatively turgid era for test cricket, right, in terms of scoring rates and the volume of test matches that were drawn. But there are some pretty entertaining characters there. Of course, Benno's leading that team as well out of the 50s and into the 60s and and then iconic uh, voices for the game and, and broadcasters later on in Bill Laurie and Ian Chappell having been Australian captain. I mean, they are, they are, they're, they're a big presence in your childhood, I suppose, and remain a presence in your life in terms of following the game thereafter. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, the if Test match cricket in the Test sixties was a, there was a period there where, where it was a real grind, and I guess I just sort of grew up with that. So uh, you know, people could couldn't stand it these days. So when when Test match, you know, these days when certain parts, certain periods of a Test match turn into that grind, I just love it. it probably takes me back to childhood because I remember, I remember so much. I remember you know boycott and Edrich. Maybe I was just after him. I came in on the tail end of Benno, so he was always trying to move the game along. I mean, probably my first moments on the radio of cricket was um, Mekif being mm. called. So I just missed, you know, the West Indies tour and, you know, seeing that I would have been five, 60, 61, five turning six. So I don't really have it in my memory, but it's the next, I think it was 62, 63 was, was Mekif. Benno was captain and, and Mech have got no ball, but by Colin Eager, who was, you know, Adelaide. So I remember sort of Colin, Colin, this Adelaide. You know, in Adelaide, you know, we were very sort of proud and possessive of our own and Colin Eager called Mech. Uh, it was, a, you know, mixed feelings there, I remember. 
but yeah, there was yeah, it was a bit of a grind those those sixties Test cricket. But yeah, you know, like you said, great characters: Ian Chappell, Keith Stackpole. I remember him taking on John Snow and late in the day one time and hitting hitting several sixes. Maybe that was at Adelaide Oval. It's hard, to, you know. It's all a blur after a while. <laughs> but I saw Ian Chappell take his uh, his first catch. You know, he's fielding in slip and the, and uh, it's still vivid in my mind him jumping to his right, taking a one-handed slips catch high, watching him bowl leg spin. And uh, I was a leg spinner too, so I always found that pretty interesting. You were a leg spinner. How did you go? Uh, I had a big turn. So I had a big turn. I could do a wrong one, but I, had, I never really got much control. But, um, you know, I could get wickets, but I could I could go for a lot too. So, of course, so when Shane Warne came along, I was, you know, was, was really interested in, in that. Terry Jenner was a big, you know, saw him play a lot. Kerry O'Keefe, bowling, loved Kerry O'Keefe's style. He used to sort of copy his sort of funny little wind-up style that he had. But I probably probably saw Terry Jenner the most as a leg spinner, you know, in live as a kid. And then, obviously, shame on. I remember that many years ago, John Harms wrote that finger spinners are like sociologists. They're careful. They stay inside the tram tracks, whereas wrist spinners, leg spinners, like historians, they take risks. Uh, they don't mind getting in trouble. Maybe that might be, uh, might, might be why you were drawn to leg spin. You were willing to take risks through your professional life and your creative life and on the cricket field as well. Yeah, being a leg spinner, it's, been, it's a mad, it's a mad, it's not even, it's not a science. It's a, it's sort of, you need sort of some sort of delusional, Quixotic um, <laughs> quality, you know. You just gotta. It's uh, glory or bust for the leg mm. spinner. Yeah, yeah. It's impressive. You know, when, when you do, yeah. But it, when you do get a, you know, when you, you the ball dips and you get someone stumped, or they the batsman's eyes light up and they try to hit you out of the ground and they sky to cover. You know, there's there's nothing better. Then there's nothing worse when you do fool the batsman and the fieldsman drops a catch. It's just the extreme highs and extreme lows for a leg spinner. Mm. You know, probably still be in reasonable stead being a leg spinner from a young age. You've got to treat triumph and disaster just the same. <laughs> Kipling, um, if you know, you seem pretty fond of Adelaide, but you you were quick to get out pretty much as soon as you could. You wandered off, travelled around Australia. There's kind of this theme of restlessness through your your life and your creative life, I guess. And you you wind up in Melbourne. You would have been, what, 2021 20, when you got to Melbourne in 1976. And um, I guess I'm curious about whether you were drawn to Melbourne just for the music or whether it was about the sport as well, you know, the MCG, the some sort of feeling of whether there was a feeling of homecoming given that's that's where the cradle was, that's where that's where Aussie Rules was born, that's where the first test match was played, all the rest of that. No, it was, it was probably more the music. I was 22. I got, I got to Melbourne in 1977 and I'd, I'd finished school in 71 um, and I'd sort of travelled around here and there, spent some time in Tassie and Queensland and back and forth to Adelaide and then started playing a cut some gigs in Adelaide. And it was really, I thought Melbourne's work, Melbourne, it was, at that stage it was sort of Melbourne, that's, that's if I want to, you know, play music, I need to get to Melbourne. So I was more that uh, I went, went over with a friend and then met, you know, stayed with mutual friends in a house in Hoddle Street, like a share house, and that, would, that, that would, all the people in that house were in a band, a band called Parachute. And that's where I met Chris Langman, who uh, is a lifelong friend, and we, we wrote songs together. We wrote Leaps and Bounds together. 
Yeah, it was a, it was sort of mu- music. So when I was twenty two, I was probably, you know, had, I was sports mad at school, and then probably, you know, drifted away a bit in my twenties, and then, you know, came back to sport. I always liked playing it, so it was always sort of like kicking the footy in the park, and I just sort of got more serious about playing sport. Probably as I, you know, into my thirties, it was sort of, oh, but you know becoming a little bit more health conscious and thinking yeah, i got to do some exercise and I hate, you know, like I always hate, I find running really boring, but if it involves chasing a ball, whether it's playing tennis or playing cricket or playing footy, you know, I could do it all day. So but the 20s wasn't, wasn't probably that, you know, probably more rock and roll, sex and drugs and rock and roll was in my 20s and then sport, came back to sport, I'd say. But always, of course, always, always keeping an eye on it. Always interested. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned leaps and bounds, which which Adam referenced as well. That that link between because you usually lived in St Kilda, which means you come up Punt Road to the top of the hill, and and that's where, you know, that's what the lyrics are referencing. Looking down to the MCG and the the Nilex clock, and there's something that it grabs Melbourne people so strongly. Just hearing their landmarks referenced and now there's this sort of circular thing where they play that song at the MCG all the time, which is a song about looking at the MCG. It's kind of comical in a way that, that it's like pop will eat itself. But I don't know, what what is that? Does that mean anything particular to you if you, you know, you go to the MCG often, you spend time there and then you've, your work has become a piece of it in a way? Uh, I sort of got used to it, so... Um it was funny because it was this, you know, it was a song, you know, it was a song about nothing, you know, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a, oh, it didn't sort of see it as a, as a song related to sport. It was just like, it was, you know, landscape, autumn, the free floating feeling of joy, which was, you know, uh, leaps and bounds, which, you know, as we started with, Chris and I started with that little melody and those words and it was, that was, the song was sort of, it was sort of about nothing. Way before Seinfeld, a song about nothing. <laughs> and um, I had never sort of thought, well, that's all it's about sport and what, what's happening inside the ground. It, just, that was, it was just like a, a landmark as far as the song goes. But I guess the leaps and bounds, which I hadn't really connected up with MCG, then people, pretty quickly people said, oh, this is a footy song. It's a footy song. It's fine. If someone thinks it's a footy song, that, that's fine with me. I don't, I don't want to uh, tell people what the song's about. Especially a song like that, it was sort of this sort of free associating kind of song. It's just become what what it is. I suppose other people other people identify with it now as being an MCG anthem, but also I find it interesting that uh, that Cricket Australia. I'm not sure if you know this, but they use it around the country now. Uh, so they have a, a playlist of songs they use during the Test matches, during intervals and, and whatnot. And um, like Adelaide, Sydney, I, I heard it uh, played a handful of times at each this year during the Test cricket. So they've obviously, you know, it, it's an MCG oriented song, but sports people generally can identify with it and make with it what they will? Yeah, I love it. I think it's what I like. Songs, you know, I like it. You, you, make, you make songs, record them and, and put them out and then they just have their own life and people use them in different ways and people hear them in different ways and it's a pretty open song like that. So it doesn't have to be nailed down to, to anything in particular. But, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I did get sick of that song for, for I didn't play it for for a long time, and then sort of worked my way back to it. And you know, we, we 
we don't play it. It's not like a regular in the set with my band and the shows that we do, but it's, Comes around often enough, you know. It's a good song to have in the encore. Yeah. Uh, the riff is you know, it's got a good riff. It sort of lifts you up, lifts us up as a band, and lifts the audience up. So it's like just a really it's a song to have in a nice song to have in the in the toolkit, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a it'd be an ideal song for the band room at the corner hotel. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it would go down pretty well there. Um, there's there's another MCG link uh, that you may be interested in. Now, Adam might be excited to know that you, for a time in the 80s, you used to play with Ian Ryland, who was the bass player in Rose Tattoo. Um, <laughs> yes. Adam, I, now, I don't know if you know this, but Adam, about a year ago, bought the Batmobile that Angry Anderson rode around in, in 1991 at Waverley Park. Really? And yeah, Adam, Adam now owns that. It's his, his personal ride. Um, so you, not- if you ever want to play in the back of the Batmobile, I'm just saying you've, you've got the link, the option's there. Oh, where, where, so what do, do you actually drive it or is it just no, you keep it? it it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a long story. In short, I'm a rabid Hawthorne supporter and, of course, that was a Hawthorne premiership yeah. in 91 where where uh, Angry Anderson was in the back of the Batmobile with Robert DiCastella uh, and all the rest of it. And um, myself and a bunch of other Hawthorne supporters, but I suppose instigated by me, saw it come up on eBay. One thing led to another. $30,000 later, we own a Batmobile. So um, the uh, it's sitting in a shed in in Footscray at the moment. I live in London, so I'm, I'm 10,000 miles from it. But I did visit the garage when I was back for the Melbourne Test this year, and it's in, it's in great shape. It's got the old AFL logo on the side, and Vic Rhodes have said they'll never register it. So then they're never going to let it be on the road itself. But we've said that once the Gosh. pandemic's over, we'll, we'll, we'll release it into the wild to do some like fundraising for local footy clubs and netball clubs around Victoria next year, hopefully. And, um, you know, the, the league, or I suppose, the, the, if, if the, the league won it for other things, they can, they can take it at different points. But it's, it's a nice thing to have a, a link to some footy history. But, yeah, um, I'm not sure if, uh, if these days I'd want much to do with uh, Angry Anderson, given his rather exotic views on, well, everything really. But obviously... It, it would have been for you a, a pretty interesting time being uh, bashing around with that band when they were reaching the peak of their powers. Just before we get on to, uh, on to that, so you're, so you're, a sin, you're, you're like, it's like you're as part of a syndicate loaning a racehorse instead of probably costs yep. less money. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Ex- it, it feels exactly the same way. It's, it's, it, I mean, the same. I mean, I'm sure we, well, I've been involved in racehorse syndicates before when you, you got the group email or the, the group WhatsApp as it is these days. Exactly the same. But what we're yeah. talking about is, um, instead of, uh, instead of trainers' fees, we're, we're talking about getting the car reupholstered, for example. So the same yeah. kind of philosophy applies. Yeah, yeah, you don't feed it every day, though. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I met Ian Ryland post Rose Tattoo. Story goes that Ian, Ian left Rose Tattoo because they weren't hard enough. <laughs> um, oh, I met Ian in Sydney, and um, there's probably, you know, most people who talk to you about Ian, he's, you know, incredibly charismatic guy, very charming. He's playing in a band called X, three piece band. And uh, I was living in Sydney. This is in between 1984 and 1990. So we're living in this, you know, sort of same area, eastern suburbs, Starlinghurst, Surrey Hills. We used to hang out a bit. I used to go and see X play a lot in pubs like the Surrey, you know, the Hopeton and mm. Strawberry Hills Trade Union Club. And, you know, yeah, I loved them. They were sort of, they had that perfect sort of, well, when a, when a, a rock and roll band, you can do it with just bass, drums, guitar, and you know, like the it's sort of like pure. It's essential. Just the three three things working perfectly. Kathy Green on drums, and Steve Lucas 
great singer, Steve Lucas. And Ian, so that, that was that were a really great band. So, yeah, we were just hanging out together. And he did, we did one recording together where it was a record I did called Post, which is pretty much an acoustic record all the way through, with just Steve Connolly and Michael Barclay doing, you know, harmonies and, and one, one Stratocaster guitar and Mike Kiss guitar. But we got Ian to play bass on one song, which is a song about a drug overdose called Inc- Incident in South Dowling. Yeah, so a lot, yeah. And then eventually moved back to Melbourne and would catch up when he came to play with his other bands. He rewrote um, or did a sort of a, an update of from St Kilda to King's Cross, one of his songs with his band Hell to Pay. It's interesting that you mentioned Post because, I, you know, when I was preparing for the interview, I, I couldn't help. I kept looking at your career in terms of a sports career at the same time. I had these sort of things in my head in that you it's a bit of a Scott Boland thing, really. You spend nearly 10 years sort of kicking around in Melbourne, uh, release a couple of albums, play gigs, get signed, get unsigned. Um, well, uh, yeah, uh, I made two records and um, I'd, I'd had, had a, supposed to, you know, I had a three record deal with Mushroom Records. But Gudinski said, we won't put up the money for your next record unless you sign for, you know, for a further three albums. So I hadn't been dropped as such by Mushroom, but I'd been, I felt that I was being held over a barrel. And I thought, you can, no, no, you know, it's a three-album deal. You can't force me to sign. Anyway, well, one of the first disagreements I had with Gudinski, so I, le- I, I, I left, and, you know, it was, but it was mutual, you know. So, no, I'm not going to re-sign for that long and then I was doing these gigs with, you know, Steve Connolly moved up and Michael Barclay, and we were doing these shows at Strawberry Hills Hotel to about on a Sunday night to about 30 people, you know, a residency. But it was a pretty – and it started right, had these songs that were written. So we had the songs in pretty good order and we had a vision of how to record them fairly minimally. So I didn't have to borrow – I borrowed the money. I borrowed $3,000 from a friend, uh, David Polterak, who just won quite a bit of money doing well on a quiz show. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he had $3,000 to spare. This is 84, late 84. So this, it was a lot, fair bit of money then, is now. But it wasn't like a huge budget even then back in the 80s. You know, there were much bigger budgets for records. I borrowed $3,000 and we did, we did the record at Clive Shakespeare's place, home studio, uh, Clive Shakespeare from Sherbet, and we did it in a week. So it was we we worked pretty efficiently, and it reaped it. You know, it covered its costs. It wasn't a big wasn't a big seller. Didn't didn't get commercial radio play, but it really it set things up for me. Even though I'd done two records before that, for me it felt like my first record where I felt like I had something of my own. I just sort of found a bit of a finding the path, I guess. And that led to, you know, then ended up re-signing back with Mushroom after someone who worked there, Michelle Higgins, locked herself in a hotel room at a music conference and said to Gidinski, I'm not coming out until you sign Paul Kelly. So uh, I worked my way back to Michael <laughs> when, you know, we had a long, Michael and I had, had a long history and uh, I left him again in the late 90s, left his publishing company, but we remained friends and got the friendship sort of got stronger as time went on. 
that's a whole other story the, 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 about Michael that he was one of those people that you could disagree with and be so, you know, we were so different to each other, with different tastes in music. We, you know, we battled each other at times. We worked together, but still he was always full of that sort of generosity of spirit, I guess. Is there a bit of a sort of a communality of, uh, or, or a group of you who, who came through the other end of the 80s, which I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty sort of hard-lived lifestyle as well. You were, you were working hard but playing hard, a lot of you. The, those who are still left standing these days, and I know, of course, Michael Ginsky passed away last year, but more generally that you've got this like, quite strong bond uh, for those who, who got out the other end and had some success. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah that, that was the feeling I have with, with talking about with Michael again was that uh, yeah, we're like old soldiers that have been on many campaigns. A lot of the times we were on different campaigns, you know, but, you know, we're always crossing paths. But just the conversations over the years and sometimes picking each other's brains as well. You know, he, he had his ups and downs, and so have I. So, yeah, I guess we always sort of could always um, look each other in the eye and say, hey. Well, he, that's what he used to say all the time. Oh, we're getting better, you know. We're like, we're like, red, we're, we're like red wine. We're gay. We're like red wine. We just keep <laughs> getting better with age. Put his, put his arm around you and give you a big glass of red wine. <laughs> <laughs> then, then there's the poignancy of the people who you do lose along the way, you know, Paul Hewson, who you dedicated the record to, who died shortly before that, Steve Connolly, your guitarist, who died in 95, and there's that link back to the football with his brother, Rowan, who's, you know, such such a a well-known football writer, and, you know, I I wonder if that bobs up for you from time to time when you are following footy media and and there's this link back to, you know, someone who was so influential in in your music at that point of time and, you know, reportedly was was the one guy in the band who would tell you when he thought you were wrong about a song or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. It happens with Steve, a lot of people. But just to talk about Steve first, yeah, it was a big, big influence. Um, We really taught me a lot about keeping things concise. He had a, you know, he loved all kinds of music, but he also had a strong pop sensibility. So he, he he was always about if you had one to you had a bar too hanging around too long between verses with an extra bar you don't need that bar or you know let's chop that or let's keep it tight and also no frills guitar playing he said he just liked to play the melody of the song in the break didn't sort of see, see, see the instrumental bits as solos I still say that to my band today so don't say solo it's a, this is a, you know if we're stopping singing for a bit it's just an instrumental break it's not a solo all right we're gonna you know and we sort of arrange it what's going to happen there we're not playing jazz <laughs> so Steve is a big influence like that but then I first met Steve when he was playing with Spencer Jones Spencer P Jones in a band called the Cuban Heels and uh, they again they were both had these very similar sets of influences and also that was strong sort of opinionated people, which I do like to work with. I worked with, you know, Spencer Jones for quite a few years in the late 90s. And I, I carried Spencer around in, you know, playing songs, playing Leaps and Bounds, for example, or Before Too Long or Too Adore, you know, that we still play those songs today and Ash Naylor or Dan Kelly will play Steve's guitar parts. They're not going to change it. That's that's the part for the song. So we're mm. carrying, we're always carrying Steve Connolly around every show I do. We're carrying Spencer Jones around. We're carrying lots of people that we lost on the way. G.W. McLennan, every time I play Careless, you know, which is sort of heavily sort of influenced by the go-betweens and lots of songs I wrote around that time. I'm carrying uh, 
GW around. So it's actually, as I get older, it's it's a feeling I've come to cherish more more and more. It's um, on his ass and on his them. It's it's uh, maybe that's one of the you know, the good things of getting old that even when your friends go, you can carry them with you. That turn in your music around that era towards more local references, I think you and Ben Folds are the only people who've written a song about Adelaide that actually works to listen to. And there's the Bradman song, of course, which is, uh, I guess, which I think of as a 90s song, but it was actually, you would have written that in 86, I guess. Yeah. And I'm interested in the the drive to write that because I, I think I get it where... You know, certainly when I was younger, I remember looking up Bradman things. Every time I looked up Bradman things, there was this sort of amazement. You know, look up his stats, look up stories about the test matches and think, how can it be possible that someone was that good? It seemed mystical and it seemed magical. And then when I heard that song for the first time, it seemed like exactly that, someone else trying to capture that sort of amazement that I felt when I was reading about him. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, yeah, he was sort of, so far above um, all other batsmen. I guess I heard a lot about it, about him growing up. He uh, he lived in South Australia. He lived in the same suburb as us, just down the road. I mean, he'd moved to South Australia after the war. He played for Kensington Cricket Club, which I played schoolboy cricket for. So I was very aware of him. My dad knew him um, through professional circles. Dad was a lawyer. Don was a stockbroker. That they sort of cross paths a bit in Adelaide. I met him once when, when, he was, when I was five, I don't remember, but uh, heavily I did. <laughs> um, so you're being in Adelaide, Dom, you know, Don Brevin. It was just huge. So it was, you know, always very aware of him through my childhood. And I liked sport, uh, cricket books, you know, I read sports books when I was younger. And I remember that song came about after reading a book by Irving Rosenwater. He was a statistician for a long time as well, but he, he wrote a book about Bradman, which had a lot of stats in it. And uh, the song, I remember the song just sort of happened after that. It wasn't planned. None of my, most of my songs aren't really planned. They tend to just sort of happen. You know, like Kawaja. I've been singing um, the Hank Williams song, Kawaja, for years. You know, when, when Usman first came on the scene and he came out to bat, I just sing it in front of the TV. Kawaja. It's the same, same as the Hank Williams song. So that's been a sort of little joke with me and Billy Miller and a few other cricket-loving friends when Dan Kelly, when, when Norseman comes out the bat, we all start singing that. We've been doing that for years. Finally had to write a song about it. I mean, you know, Labashan, you know, every time Labashan comes out to, to play, Billy Miller and I go, Labashan, Labashan. This is our, the old Wayne Newton song. Dunkershan. So, <laughs> yeah, Dunkershan. So, watch out. I think somebody's. I think, so, I think somebody's That's done next. that. I think somebody's put a, put a song about Lavashan to that melody. Uh, I heard. I heard recently. Anyway, so yeah, it's um, you know, the song about Shane Warne came came about from uh, again it's an existing tune, but a Calypso song by. Um, London is the place for me. Well, there's a lot of Lord Calypso beginning. cricket music. There's the, the Alec yeah, Benza so. songs. There's the even Rally Around the West Indies, which they now use as the sort of pseudo-national anthem, was a Calypso about 
that team which they happen to take up. Like there's there's a big tradition of it, but it seems it's quite. It victory, looks like victory test match. Yeah, victory test match. That's another great one too. And but it looks oh, like two pals of mine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Ramadine and Valentine. But it's hard to yeah. it's hard to write creatively about cricket. You know, I've I, I used to write poetry, and I occasionally I tried, but it's, that was just awful. Everything was awful. It was you know it, it was aside from obvious tendency to rhyme cricket with wicket it's i don't know it's hard to capture it in a way that that actually gets the grandeur of it it's easier in prose but doing it in in more creative ways is difficult yeah i mean it's, it's trying up a great tradition tradition uh, of prose yeah i guess i mean like i said cricket's is huge for the panoramic canvas so i don't know I'd love, to, you know, I'd love to write a song about Robert, Robert, Robbie Flower one day just because I think one of my favourite footballers and it's got a good name for it. You know, often it's just if the, name, the name's right. I love reading uh, Martin Flanagan when he, when he writes about Melbourne and it goes into talking about Robbie Flower and what he meant to Melbourne people, obviously having had a, such a successful personal career but not really being satisfied as a, as a team footballer, not playing finals until the very end and, and all the rest of it. Just on, on, on Kawaja, on the song you wrote last month, what's the creative process like for that? I mean, you had your hook, as you mentioned before, singing it to your mates for the previous decade, but did you just wake up when he completed the Twin Tons and think, I just, I'm just i compelled to do this, I need to do this today, and and a few hours later that's the song? Or like, or, or is it more elaborate than that and it's something that may have happened anyway? Or how, how did that come to pass? It was at night time, so I think it was pretty much maybe it was, it was maybe day four of that test. It was pretty much in, straight after, and it was. And it was once it started, it was like, "Uh oh, um, am I going to stop this or not? Am I going to walk away or not?" So I thought, "No, I won't walk away. I might as well finish it." So yeah, it was written very quickly. But then I often did it. I often tweak things for a few days afterwards. But yeah, I, I think I wrote that one very. I think I posted it a couple of days after that test. So, but it was written written in a couple of hours. But you know, the tune the tune was there. Had a great tune, the Hank Williams tune. So it's just sort of fitting, fitting the words to that. I remember, you know, I think the Shane Warren was a pretty quick one too. It's just that, again, there was an existing tune. And once you sort of start, you get on, uh, I just try to push through till I finish it. The Bradman, I remember, was longer because I, I always thought I haven't finished it yet. Because I only got up to, um, 1932. <laughs> he played the 1948, and I was I was at 1932, 33, and I, and it was still it was seven and a half minutes long. I said, "Time to wrap this up." <laughs> um, uh, and uh, you know, in hindsight, it was uh, it was sort of the, you know it was again one of those decisions you make that you think. Yeah, I, I felt at the time I've just abandoned it. I just you know I've just stopped. I just stopped arbitrarily, but I kind of stopped at his at his peak. No, I stopped not at his peak. I stopped just after when I stopped at his most vulnerable. I talked about yeah, I talked about his high his highs and incredible exploits, the triple centuries and so on, and then finished on body line where he was at his most vulnerable. So. I remember thinking back years later, thinking I st- I, I, it's good. I stopped that song at a good time. <laughs> well, 
two things I'd say to that. I can't remember whose line it was, but someone's great maxim is a poem is never finished, only abandoned. Uh, so abandonment is, is part of the process. And the other thing is at least you stopped the song before Don Bradman sacked uh, Clary Grimmett from the test team unjustly in 1936 because that's a, that's a real low point for the Don. You, you don't want to have to try to pretty that up. But, you know, it's <laughs> something like the Shane Warne song is more, it's a kind of, it's a comedy song really, whereas the, the Bradman song is serious business. That was, you're really trying to capture something about the awe that people had for this guy. And then it's interesting the way it shifted sort of after his death as well, where, you know, he was he was basically a saint before he died and, and now there's a much more realistic view of him as a, a flawed personality as well as a great cricketer. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, even even when I was writing this song, I was, I was aware of, of the, the, all the, the tensions and the conflicts within the team and, and the, also that he always wasn't popular. It was just, uh, I guess, it was just, it was his staggering uh the staggering gap between what he did and others that sort of is really the song i guess and we do that we do that in australia don't we like we really do hold up at the people that we love for what they're good at i mean we really do hold them up very high and we are happy to accept a lot along the way i mean i'm you think of someone like Shane Warne. I mean, what a magician as a cricketer. Again, another flawed human being, but people tend to discount the latter because of the former. And to an extent, I suppose, and this is not putting you in the same basket, but you get that adulation yourself when when Gravy Day rolls around each year, as it has in the last handful of years now. And it's almost like a Paul Kelly celebration day in the build-up to Christmas. And it's just so much love being bestowed upon you for your career in music and, and in the arts more generally. I mean, how do you handle that when you know that there's going to be this day in the calendar when there's going to be so much attention around you and what you've achieved? Again, it's sort of something that uh, happened that I didn't have much to do with. So it's just, I think it's a, fu- it's a fun thing. You know, we started to do shows in December and, it's been a, a good way to, to put these sort of little, like one, what I sort of see as a mini festival where you can put a, a good lineup together of uh, four or five bands and make it more than just uh, just, a, just a, an average concert where it's, you know, concert with an opening act. We make a little, make a little, a day of it and try to get a real interesting mix of artists. That's given me an, an opportunity to, to play with that and do the, the gravy shows, you know, I think it might be time to, you know, give that a rest for a bit. Sort of, I felt like this year it got a bit out of control <laughs> last year. Uh, it, it's so. Uh, but, but I mean, that's kind of, isn't that kind of the point really? That it's got its own momentum now. Like, you know, even from people who may not have a much of an understanding of what you've done throughout the last four decades, but through this filter um they've been brought into your world and i mean it must be it must be a bizarre feeling when you wake up that day and i'm not sure how engaged you are in social media land but the extent to which that's taken over by you for a whole day like you are the national conversation for a day on social media and and beyond that now really as well like that that must be just a, a really strange thing to happen in a lovely way but nevertheless i mean you've had a chance to reflect on that much I'm sort of aware that it's going on, but I don't spend a lot of time on social media, you know, I, I, so I sort of use it more like just as a, for work. 21st of December last year, well, we'd finished the show in uh, Queensland and I was driving that day, so I was just driving down to meet some of my Brisbane family. So it was just a 
it's just another day. But, you know, it was a, it was a Christmassy type day. It was, uh, I was getting to spend a mm. bit of time before Christmas with them, before I went back to Melbourne for Christmas. So, um, yeah, it just passes. It passes by pretty quick. Just one day. <laughs> one of the things I noticed, I, I watched that documentary and there's that bit of footage of you with your son Declan in probably the late 80s playing cricket in the car park of a hotel while you're on tour. It's this really sweet little moment, you know, he's, he's batting and then you're batting. And Was that something that happened a fair bit on tour or was it occasional? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's from time to time it, it breaks out. As a game, as some kind of sport will break out. Uh, we sometimes take a – more these days we'll take a footy with us. I've got a very sporty band, so there's five – you know, four of us play tennis, Dan, Ash, Cam and me. Vicar and Linda are with us. Linda, Linda plays, so we often get some doubles going or peel off for some singles. Ash and I get to play some singles a fair bit and take a footy as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's funny. Everyone's, everyone's very sporty, um, which is fun. So, yeah, it's sports part of, sports part of what, what we do, travelling on tour. Cricket's a bit harder. Than, well, yeah, I think cricket's fairly, uh, fairly uh, once in a while. It's not that easy to do safely. It's something that I suppose musicians and cricketers have in common, isn't it? A heavy touring schedule. I mean, Jeff and I do a lot of touring as well with the with the Australian team, and uh, I've listened to every fucking city um, a number of times when when touring around. Not necessarily because I feel that there's a that there's that there's a uh, a sameness from place to place that we go, but I, I wonder whether it might be the case for musicians and players because you you're, you've got a job to do. You're moving from place to place so quickly that that sometimes it can be additionally taxing that you can't necessarily get out and smell the roses too too often because, well, when it boils down to it, you've got to perform every night and, and they've got to perform every day and is that thing you have in common. Yeah, it's, it's funny. That there's a lot of similarities and, you know, especially um, in, in Melbourne, I think there's a lot of – it's a very big sporting city, you know, lots and lots of people in bands in Melbourne love love their footy or, or love their sport, you know, you know, Tex Perkins and Tim Rogers and – and I've got Bernard Fanny and uh, they, they, those guys, they, uh, they love their cricket. And it's like the, all the musicians want to be uh, sports people and a lot of the sports people, you know, want to be musicians or songwriters. So there's a little bit of, uh, <laughs> you know, Robert Murphy and I've talked about this. Yeah. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, we sort of look, look at each other's worlds and think, oh, you know, I'd like to do that. And we think, oh, we'd like to do that. You know, we have it so much easier, people in bands. You know, we go out every night to do a show and we know whoever's turned up to that show, they're for us. And we're not being, you know, the pressure on sports people at the high, at a high level is incredible. Yeah. Every little error or tiny, tiny, tiny perceived lack of courage is magnified. They go out there not knowing whether they're going to win or lose, whether they're going to be badly injured, they're going to be humiliated, uh, make a terrible mistake. So, you know, I've got nothing but uh, admiration for them. I'm interested as well because cricket, and especially Cricket Australia in the last few years particularly, they're they're trying to repair a a relationship with Indigenous Australia that that almost doesn't exist. You know, so, so bad has that relationship been. And that, that's been a big part of your life is, is your friendship with Indigenous Australia, the, 
the way you've uh, worked on those topics through your music um, with with Marilinga and then the Vincent Lingiari song, working with Kev Carmody and, and Archie Roach and, and Dan Sultan and then more recently with Briggs and, and Trials, that what must have been a very fun sort of cover version slash remix slash chop up of dumb things that you did with those guys. Yes. And you worked with Yothi Yindi as well when they wrote Treaty. Like you've got this long relationship. I mean, was that something you decided to do or did it just evolve naturally from from starting to be interested in those stories and, and making those friendships? Uh, I guess it mainly started out of curiosity and, you know, and starting to read, read things in the, from around the mid-80s. Probably a book that was a big influence on me was Henry Reynolds, The Other Side of the Frontier, which opened my, opened my eyes a lot to Australian history. And that was about the same time that we were interested in sort of playing, you know, as many places as we could and out of the capital cities. And uh, I remember we got some, we got a, an offer from to do tour of the tour of some ab- Aboriginal communities in Northern Territory, to uh, places to play like Elko Island and Manangrida, Yukala, Tennant Creek. Um, Elliot, and so the sort of things just sort of kicked off from there. It was, it was really just meeting people along the way and then getting invited. I mean, I met Yothi Yindi in Chicago when they were opening up for um, Midnight Oil and we were on tour and we had a night off and we went down to, to see see them play. That was the first time I met Dr. Yunapingu and uh, that sort of led to uh, me being invited to work with them on their, their second album. You know, Kev Carmody, Met him in the, in the late 80s when I was in Sydney. There was a lot of Rock for Land Rights concerts and those kinds of things going on, building bridges concerts. It's just really, really being open to things and then following up leads. And there were sort of important friendships to me. Kev Carmody and Archie Roach and Dr. Unipingu. And, you know, I learned, I learned a lot through those friendships too and helped my understanding of our history Aboriginal culture and uh, the burden that every Ab- Aboriginal person carries. It sort of brings us back to where we started to an extent with um, Scott Boland and the MCG on the 28th of December. When that happened, I, I was reminded, I mentioned Martin Flanagan again, he wrote something after the 93 grand final that it was um, the great reconciliation ceremony that we never had at half time of that game between Carlton and Essendon. It was the International Year of the Indigenous Person and it was this amazing commemoration of Indigenous culture and it was of its time, I suppose. Uh, Keating was Prime Minister. We were having conversations around Indigenous Australia that we that we didn't have before and probably really haven't had since. But I, I was reminded of that on the Scott Boland day, as I'm sure it'll be known into the future, just that extraordinary response that the MCG had to him winning the Johnny Muller medal and even the way they res- responded to the, the Welcome to Country on, on Boxing Day. It was pretty special. How did you interpret that? as far as the, the importance of the MCG right at the middle of, of that conversation around reconciliation when it comes to, when it comes to sport and cricket? I mean, you couldn't script it, couldn't script it really, could you? You know, that, I, I don't know much about, you know, Australian cricket and, and the things they're doing to involve more Indigenous cricketers. But, um, you know, just like so many people, I just, just loved it. What, what I really loved was, was uh, Scott... When they, the teammates are trying to get him to sort of put, put his hand, hold the, hold the ball up for his five, so he just sort of so he puts, you know, he puts a half an elbow up. Or, uh, and then when they tried to get him, you know, at the end of the afterwards, uh, when the, the match had finished and, you know, walk around the ground, 
applauding and thanking the crowd again. He was just you know, trying to keep trying to push him up the front, and he kept trying to just meld back into the team. It was yeah, just great. And uh, you know, I hope he gets a whole lot more games and keeps taking wickets. Where do you see your um, your relationship with the game ending up? Are you going to be at the MCG in a few decades' time, being one of those real old coaches who's who's still rocking up? <laughs> I don't. You, you never. I can't tell. You know, if I was if I'm still around in a few decades' time, you know, I could still move. I'll be going down. I always love. You know, I still like watching Test cricket. If I can, I'll be there. Paul Kelly. We've had a, a wonderful chat with you today uh, and we've enjoyed your work over the journey and uh, glad that you've been able to enjoy some good days at the MCG as well. Uh, thanks very much for spending some time with us on The Final Word. My pleasure, Jeff and Adam. Thanks very much. All the best to you guys and bring on the balls and the bats and the rest of it. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. It's the final word with, well, just me, Adam Collins, as I mentioned. At the halfway mark, Jeff's uh, rushed off to get his flight, but I hope you uh, enjoyed that that long conversation with Paul Kelly. To think what a massive presence he's been in Australian culture over, well, four decades now, five decades even, uh, that he was willing to come and share some thoughts with us was a a real privilege and an honour. So thank you again to him. Uh, Thank you to everybody who helps make the show possible week in, week out on our Patreon page. The Discord chat has been outstanding in the last few weeks. If you're a patron and haven't made it over to Discord, drop us a line in the DMs and we can send you a link straight over there. That's pretty straightforward. A couple of people were in touch last week saying that they hadn't quite worked out uh, how to get over to Discord. We can help you with a code on that front. If you haven't joined up before, patreon.com forward slash the final word and join the fun and help us make the show week in, week out. That's also the case with Brick Lane Brewing. We love having them as a big part of our final word family, as we do Woodstock Cricket, woodstockcricket.co.uk with the offer code TFW20. Okay, uh, we'll leave it there. I've got plenty to do myself between now and when I jump on a flight in about 16 hours and join Jeff in Islamabad. Uh, We can't wait to bring you uh, those daily shows. We're going to try and make one every day of the tour. Uh, Whether that becomes possible, time will tell. But the intention is to make 25 daily shows in 25 days. All right, uh, we'll see you in Pakistan. This has been the final word. Word. Bye for now. So you know what I, mean I had to go about it.